Deuteronomy 9. We are going to get through a couple of chapters, though. And there's a lot of great stuff in here tonight. Moses continuing on in his long oration, in his recovering things. Now, I said something, and and you'll see this a little bit tonight. Back when we first started, nine chapters ago, when we first started Deuteronomy, I said that part of what Moses will do, especially from about chapter 5 through, oh, about the next 21 chapters, 26, 27, somewhere in there, what Moses will do is take the law, which we've already studied, we've already seen it in the book of Exodus and in Leviticus, he's going to take it and apply it. He's going to give it a relevance that this generation of Israel has yet to hear. The previous generation heard the law as it was, but had to try and work it out. You're going to hear about, for example, tonight, the relevance of circumcision. Moses is going to put a relevance to it that has not been heard yet, but will be heard tonight. Which is interesting, There's a, I was hearing on the radio just earlier driving over here, I live a long way off, so sometimes I have to have to make that long, arduous journey. And as I was driving, oh, I, no, I dropped Hayden off at Taekwondo. So I was coming back, and there was a conference coming up. If you're interested, in Seattle, it's in about the next month. I can get more information if you'd like to hear. It's a, a medical conference, and I think it's called the Conference uh, for the Discussion of Circumcision and Genital Integrity. I am not kidding. <laughs> That's taken integrity to a place I've never (laughs) considered before. But heard it on the radio, so I thought I'd pass that along for those of you who are interested. Let's get right into our study, shall we? Deuteronomy chapter (laughs) 9. Let me pray. Father, take us into your word tonight, Lord. And and I pray that we would be blessed by it. That we would see the relevance of these things. And Lord, even things that, that we might not understand. In our culture, we might laugh about, kid about... But Father, you you have a reason for everything you do. You have a wonderful reason for everything that's in this book, for every verse, Father. Even as Moses, Lord, I'm studying through and thinking about how Moses repeats so much. But you have it there on purpose, Lord. I believe this. And I believe tonight, even if we cover things that we have heard, stories that we have gone over before, that it's your intention we cover them again. We see them again. I, I don't fully understand why, but Father, I believe... That your word is immutable. I believe that it is a foundation of truth that is lost in this world. And I believe we need it. So I pray tonight in faith, asking Lord that you would bless us in the study of your word. And take us into places of depth and understanding and meaning. But especially in the precious relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 9. We covered chapters 8 and chapters 9 pretty much on Sunday, but didn't do a lot in chapter 9. So I'm going to pick up right there in verse 1 of chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them, and He will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. I like that word dispossess in verse 1, because that's what this is about. God is bringing the nation of Israel in to dispossess the nations that are already there because of their wickedness. Because they've lost the right to be in that land. And so Israel will come along and dispossess them. And and Moses says, Do not say in your heart, verse 4, When the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people." Surprisingly enough, even after reading a verse like that, Moses looking into the face of all Israel and saying, You are a stubborn people. This is still a book that is an outpouring of love. And the further into Deuteronomy I get, the more I see it. 
Why is it that Moses keeps hounding and hounding and hounding and coming back and back to obey the Lord and obey His statutes and obey His commandments? Why does he keep going there? Because he loves the people so much. It is that sense of a father telling his son or daughter, please, please, just do as I say. Trust me in this. I know you don't understand. I know your mind is full of whys. And I'm just going to say because. Because there are things you don't know that I know. Please, I beg of you, Moses is saying. Listen to the Lord. Obey His commandments. He loves this people passionately. And He's concerned, as we've talked about recently, that once the people come into the land, their prosperity, which is really gifts of the Lord Himself, would yield a fruit of presumption and pride, or worse yet, forgetfulness. And so in verse 7, Moses goes on and says, Remember, do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been a rebellious, or you have been rebellious against the Lord. Now the rest of chapter 9 and 10, Moses is going to talk about their rebellion. He's going to go back over four or five areas, specific stops along the journey, where they rebelled big time. He wants to remind them of it. He wants them to remember, and in that way, the same applies for us, that we would remember where it is we came from. And understand our great need for Jesus Christ. I was telling Joe earlier, I'm in the midst of, of emailing back this friend of mine. I've, I've mentioned her to you before and would ask you to pray for her. Um, I won't give a name, but just a friend of Rick's that I've known from fourth grade that I'm trying to talk about Christianity. And she was in youth group with us and no longer is. And one of the questions she asked me in the last email is, why do we need Jesus? Why do we, you know, she's into this other guru, teacher, philosopher guy who died, by the way, in 1986. He's still dead. Uh, Jesus is not. But this other guy that she's into, and she said, I understand that sometimes you need someone to give you direction and, and a path, but, but why do we need Jesus? Why would God send someone to tell us what he wants of us? Can't we just figure that out for ourselves? And I wrote her back and I said, we need Jesus because without him we're lost. It's not about living a good life. The fact is, none of us can. The fact is, none of us are even close to being good enough. Even on our best days, we have our moments, don't we? And if the Lord is absolute light, the whole point of Jesus' coming was to express the Father to us, and on top of that, to die for us, a death that nobody else could do. The best of us couldn't die for us. It wouldn't work. So God came up with this fantastic, wonderful plan. And yet... Even as Christians, in our prosperity, in our pride, we actually begin to think that it has something to do with our primary goodness that we're saved. Or at least our potential for doing good. As I said on Sunday, God looks at us and He sees something and I think, God saw something in me, which is why He saved me. Yeah, He saw something in me. Sin! (laughs) And He knew I needed Him. And so because of that, his plan is perfect. So Moses continues this speech, and he's going to rewind the people 40 years, all the way back to Mount Horeb, where the law was given to prove a primary point. And that is that it's not my potential, but it's God's plan that will yield blessing. It's not what I can drum up, it's what God has already done. Gang, we are caught up in something far greater than our individual selves. Praise God, our individual selves are saved. Praise God that He stoops down from heaven and cares enough about you and me to love us personally and individually and intimately. But it's so much bigger than that. It's huge. Isaiah 43 verse 12, the Lord says, It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. There was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God, even from eternity, I am He. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act. And who can reverse it? I act. It is my work that's going on here. And over and over, Moses will declare to the people that the Lord is going to accomplish His work with or without them. He is going to get the job done. And he warns them not to think it has anything to do with their righteousness. So tonight we go on a little trip with Moses and the people down memory lane, but it ain't the scenic route. Verse 8. Even at Horeb, Moses said, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, 
is on Mount Sinai, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord had made with you. Then I remained on the mountain forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. The first stop on memory lane is Mount Sinai. First place Moses wants to remind them of. It's where Moses fasted and the people feasted. It's the place where Moses received the commandments while the people reveled in carnality. The place where Moses worshipped at the summit, but there was wickedness in the camp. Verse 10 reading on. Moses says, The Lord gave me the two tablets, and I love this. He gave me the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Do you realize what all happened there? The Ten Commandments specifically, and we read this before, were spoken by the Lord from Mount Sinai and all the people heard it. Those Ten Commandments that the rabbis say were spoken in 70 languages, all the languages present on the planet at the time, were spoken and the people heard the Ten Commandments. But they were so afraid by commandment number 10, so freaked out that they said, Enough! Moses, go talk to the Lord and get the rest of it for us. We can't handle this. And so Moses went up the mountain. And God then inscribed those Ten Commandments with his finger, wrote them down for the people, and gave the two tablets to Moses. It says that it came about at the end of the 40 days and nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Now this verse has always intrigued me, this idea of the finger of God. Seeing the old Charlton Heston version, you see how he's standing there and, and there's the big fire and out of the flame it's like a, a flame shoots in and hits the, hits the stone and burns in the words. That's not what happened. At least to my understanding, the finger of God wrote right into the stone, inscribed into those rock tablets. And it amazes me. And I think, wouldn't it be great to have an autographed copy of the Bible? <laughs> yeah, I got mine autographs. It's, you know, open it up and just says, God, right there. And he signed it for me. But that's what the Ten Commandments were. They were an autographed copy of the law written by God himself, not spoken to Moses, and he went up there and chiseled them out, as some recent uh, TV movies have tried to, tried to claim. Wasn't Moses up there figuring it out and writing it down? The finger of God actually touching. We're talking extraterrestrial contact. God who is spirit, reaching into the world of the physical and writing with his own finger on these tablets. The divine, scribbling in the dust. The creator, inscribing the created. The eternal word, word scrawled on the temporal substance. Amazing, the finger of God. Writing the words of man that man might know the Lord. And it's amazing because isn't that exactly what he did in Jesus Christ when the word became flesh. The spirit, God, who is spirit. And those who worship him, Jesus says, must worship in spirit and in truth. That's how you come to God. But, but God understood our weaknesses and our failings. And so he, being spirit, became flesh. The finger of God. He, he wrote in Jesus Christ. Now I don't have time to go deep into this tonight, but it's a fascinating study and I encourage you to consider this this week in your own study. Study the finger of God in Scripture. Just go through. I'll give you four places you, you can read. You can look starting here in Deuteronomy chapter 9. And then you can move from Mount Sinai to the courts of Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. Watch what happens where God's finger writes there. It's awesome. It's a very cool situation. And from there to the courts of the Jewish temple dust in Judea, where again the finger of God writes, John chapter 8. You know the story, a woman caught in adultery and Jesus bends down and begins to write with his finger in the ground there in the temple courts. What did he write? I don't know. Some, some have guessed he began writing out the sins of all the men who brought the woman caught in adultery. You know, others have guessed maybe he was just drawing arrows pointing to each one of them. You know, and sinner. I don't, you know, we don't know what he wrote. But the finger of God at work writing. And then go from the temple dust in Judea to the very heart of man where God determines to inscribe the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 first proclaimed it. Hebrews chapter 8 brings it into full meaning for you and I as well as the Jewish people. The writing of the finger of God that will touch you. The finger of God. Check it out when you have some time to do so. I encourage you. Verse, uh, let's see, verse 12 going on. Then the Lord said to me, Arise and go down from here quickly for your people whom you have brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. 
they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image for themselves. Now some people have said, well, wait a minute. He hadn't come down with the Ten Commandments. How did they know right and wrong? They had heard it. They heard the Lord say, you shall have no other gods before me. They heard the Lord say, you shall have no graven images. They heard it before Moses brought the written commandments down. And they had already, within 40 days, slightly over a month, they had already headed into major violation. So God says they quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. God is always 100% fair. So they've made a molten image for themselves. The Lord spoke further to me, Moses says, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. What a test for Moses. And I got to tell you, if I was Moses coming down the mountain, I'm not sure if I would have passed. Wait a minute. So you're saying, Lord, that if I just hang out here with you, you'll wipe out the grumblers and whiners and complainers, the pains in my neck, for the whole last year of traveling, they'll be gone? And you'll make me into a great nation. <laughs> Father Moses has many sons. It wouldn't be Father Abraham anymore. It wouldn't be the people of Israel. It would be the people of Moses. The name of Moses inscribed across the sky. The name of Moses, when we look back, it wouldn't be Israel today in the Middle East. It'd be, I don't know, Moses land. <laughs> and I don't think I could have passed that test. I don't know. How long was Moses alone fasting on the mountain? Forty days. Interesting. How long was Jesus alone fasting in the wilderness? Forty days. We find a stunning comparison here. What was Moses doing on the mountain for those forty days? He was feeding on the word of God. He was watching the word get written. How awesome is that? What was Jesus doing in those forty days in the wilderness? Same thing. Feeding on the word of God. How do we know? Because he was immediately ready with the word of God the moment Satan appeared and tried to tempt him. And I've said this before, I believe Jesus was studying the book of Deuteronomy. Because every single response of Jesus to Satan was right out of the book of Deuteronomy. Feeding on the word. The parallel is amazing. Moses went 40 days without food and water. He was near physical death. But he subsisted on and he was strengthened by every word proceeding out of the mouth of God. Physically weak but spiritually strong, he faced a huge test. God tested him. I'll make you great, Moses. I will make a great nation of you and we'll just do away with all these other people. Jesus was 40 days without food and water, near physical death, subsisting on and strengthened by every word proceeding out of the mouth of God. Physically weak, spiritually strong, Jesus faced an almost identical situation, but this time it was not a testing, it was a temptation. Satan comes along and says, I'll make you great. Just like God said to Moses, I'll make you great. All this can be yours. If you'll just bow down and worship me. What's the difference between God's test of Moses and Satan's temptation of Jesus? What's the difference there? God is testing. Satan is tempting. But the two often happen, and this is important for us in our lives, they are often simultaneous events. Often Satan will attempt to bring us into a situation to tempt us with sin, and at the same time God is allowing the event to test us. Or God may set up a test for us in our lives, and Satan catches wind of it and tries to turn it into a temptation. Testing and tempting are really a matter of perspective. You see, in Satan's view, he tempts us to destroy us and to disprove God's goodness. In God's view, he tests us to strengthen us while proving his goodness. Now draw this through with me. Think about this. James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And then Peter comes along and says in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice. 
Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I tell you those three verses for this reason. The word test and the word tempt, though different words in the Hebrew, are the same word in the Greek language. In the New Testament, it's the same word. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, or it's around verse 1, when it says, The tempter came to Jesus. He had been in the wilderness, and the tempter came. The word tempter there is the same word that is used by Peter when he says, Tested by fire, tempter, tester, same word. The word is pyrazo. Sounds like something you'd cook in an Italian restaurant. But pyrazo literally means proof. Proof. So Satan tempts, God tests. Either way, it's all about proof. Satan is trying to disprove God's goodness. He's trying to disprove any commitment or faithfulness you might have. God is proving his goodness in you. He allows these things. You know, Satan has to ask permission. We talked about this recently. In fact, it stunned me in a recent elders meeting this came up. Satan has to ask permission. He, he did with Job. He had to go before the Father in the book of Job chapter 1. Lord, I, I'd like to get after this guy. And he had to have God's permission. We're told that Peter, Jesus said, Hey Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. These examples of Satan having to get permission kind of throws me into a quandary when, when I'm being tempted or tested or there's struggle in my life, I kind of go, wait a minute. If Satan has to ask permission, then God knows about this and he's allowing it to take place. Which is kind of cool because then I start to think, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? How are you trying to prove me? Pyrazo. How are you trying to strengthen me in this? Because when I think in the flesh, which is a satanic way of thinking, by the way, when I am in the flesh, I'm not thinking about being proven or strengthened. I'm thinking about how hard life is. And how woe is me. And how, man, I'm just going to give up. I can't handle this. But if I think, wait, God's at work here. There's something bigger than me going on. God's proving me in the same way that gold is proven by fire. Pyrazo, proof. Interesting. And both Moses and Jesus prove the perfect will of the Father. Moses was an amazing man. Of all human beings who ever lived, with maybe the exception of Daniel, Moses is one that I look at and just go, wow, this guy was spirit-filled. <laughs> this guy was so full of the Spirit as he led the people. He was next to sinless. Oh, he blew it big time. We know those stories. But he was so close and so good. And in this situation, he did not fail. Verse 15 tells us, I turned and I came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire. Interesting that Moses didn't burn up. And the two tablets of the covenant, they were in my two hands. And I saw that you had indeed sinned against the Lord your God. You'd made for yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and I threw them from my hands and smashed them before your eyes. Hey, you broke the law. So what Moses did here was a physical representation of what they already had done spiritually. You broke the law. I will break the law and show you what you're doing. But verse 18 is absolutely stunning. I fell down before the Lord as at the first for 40 days and nights. 40 more days and nights. Now I don't know if he caught a hamburger in between, but that would be a long time to go without food. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him for, to anger. And I was afraid, he says, verse 19, of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me. <laughs> what a relationship. The Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. So I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust, and I threw its dust into the brook that came down from the mountain. We find out in other places he made them drink that gold dust water. But what's going on here? Moses is saying, do you remember that? Remember that sin? It's 40 years ago, guys. A long time ago. Do you remember what happened? 
Do you remember even how close you were to destruction? You were almost completely wiped out. And the first 40 days, I was up on the mountain having a grand time. I was feeding on the Word. But the second 40 days, I was back up there fighting for your lives. Which, by the way, is a great combination for a child of God. Feeding on the Word and fighting for people's lives. Feeding on the Word, knowing the Word, studying it, and fighting for others in prayer. Intimacy and intercession. Feeding and fighting. It's worship and warfare. And the two together are a powerful combination. And this is what Moses does, and it's, it's absolutely amazing. He bypasses the opportunity to be great, even by the Lord's hand himself, and says, No, Lord, please forgive your people. Forgive them. Please, Lord. He begged for 40 days. Now Moses mentions four other grand failures on the part of Israel. Verse 22, he goes, Again at Taborah, and at Massa, and at Kibroth, Hataava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Three places, one verse. Taborah, Massa, and Kibroth, Hataava. What happened there? We studied most of that in the book of Numbers. At Taborah. Numbers chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 tells us the people were complaining. We don't know what they were complaining about, which is interesting to me. The Bible just says they were complaining and the Lord broke out in fire. And many were killed on that day. He combusts in hot, holy anger among the people. And we don't know what they were complaining about, but it doesn't matter because the bottom line is, and we should learn from this, complaining causes combustion. God doesn't like complaining because the moment we begin complaining before the Lord, what we are saying to Him is, you don't provide enough for me. You're not taking care of me the way I see or the way I think I need to be taken care of. My life, these people around me, these things I have to do, blah, 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 complain, complain, be careful. Because when Israel did it, God combusted. What was he doing? Well, it's it's like parents saying, if you don't quit complaining, kids, I'm going to give you something to complain about. (laughs) It's one of my favorite pastimes with our kids. I'm bored. Really? The vacuum is just dying for someone to play with. Lord, I don't have anything to do. Boy, your room could use a shiny. Get at it. Our kids have learned not to say that they're bored in front of Cheryl and I. Oh, they'll hem, haw, and sigh. They'll do that thing. They'll come and sit in the room and just go. <sighs> and it's to the point where I just go, you bored? No, no, I'm good. And off they go. <laughs> it's the end of summer, too. Man, Lord, thank you. You know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. The song's all wrong. It's not Christmas. It's September. <sighs> anyway, at Tabera, that's what happened. They were complaining and the Lord busted out. At Massa... Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, the people were quarreling for a lack of water. It's just amazing. The Lord had brought them through the Red Sea and they didn't think He could provide a cup of water? Hello? If He can part the waters, He can give you water, and yet they quarreled there. They complained. Moses reminds them of this. At Kibroth Hata'ava, one of my favorite stories in Scripture, is just so bizarre. Numbers 11, 18 through 21, and then 31 through 34 in that chapter. The people are sick and tired of manna. They crave carne. They want some carne asada. They want some good meat. And so God says, All right, you want meat? I'll give it to you until it's coming out of your nostrils. His words, not mine. God's got a sense of humor. It's going to be pouring out of your nose. You're going to be so. It's kind of like the old quit smoking campaigns in the 70s. I don't know if you remember these, but they put people in a room and they just had to smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke. Pack after pack after pack until they were just sick and tired of it, thinking maybe that would help them stop. And that was God's plan here with the meat. You're going to eat so much, you're going to be sick to death of it. And I love this verse. I've quoted it many times. Numbers 11.33 While the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. How many of you saw the old movie Poltergeist? Remember that movie? Scariest movie I'd ever seen up to date. Now they've done much worse since then but at the time I remember because I was a kid. How old were we Cheryl? Was that? Were we that old? Well, I didn't let my friends see how much it scared me. I was a, was a senior. I didn't think we were that old. Maybe juniors? 
early 80s, and, and this movie was just awful, but there's a scene in it, if you saw it, you remember, this guy goes into a kitchen, it's late at night, you know, and you got the music, ooh, and so you know something's going to happen, and he grabs some meat, a steak, and a chicken leg out of the refrigerator and sets it down on the counter, and he bites, puts the chicken leg in his mouth and bites into it, and he's kind of eating, and he looks over at the steak, and it begins to crawl across <laughs> the counter on its own. And he kind of opens his mouth and the chicken leg drops out of his mouth as he's looking at this thing. And then he looks down on the floor and the chicken leg is covered with maggots. <laughs> Just one of the gross out sensor. That's what it was about. But I tell you about that because that's kind of an idea of what was going on here. The meat was still in their teeth and they were struck with a plague and it would not surprise me at all if maggots started pouring out of their mouths. I mean, God said, you want meat? I'll give you meat. But you don't understand what you're asking for here. By the way, the manna was perfect. It was good stuff. The Bible tells us that while they traveled those 40 years, their feet never swelled up. Even on long journeys, walking. Did my feet swell up when I walked to the mailbox? Okay, <laughs> Through that 40 years, their feet didn't swell. Their clothes didn't wear out. They were healthy. That manna was good stuff. But they were sick of it, and so they said, We want meat. And the Lord gave them meat. And Psalm 106.13 tells us they soon forgot His works. They waited not for His counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. And i got to ask you, has God ever done that to you? Given you your request, but with that request sent a leanness of the soul. You got exactly what you wanted. And when you got it, you realized... It doesn't work. It is not fulfilling. God will sometimes do that in our lives. Give us everything we ask for only to leave us finding ourselves lean and empty and dissatisfied. And there's a way to satisfaction in this world. We sang about it earlier. In 1887, John Samus penned the words to the now old but precious hymn, Trust and Obey. There's no other way. I thought there was another way, especially when I was early in youth ministry. I thought there were ways to get around the whole obedience thing. It was just about kind of the fun and the relationship and Jesus my bud, you know, and God's the man and, and any Bible study and all that, you know, serious church stuff. We don't really need that. We can just hang with the Lord, you know. But the reality is trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It is so key. And the deeper I go in the walk, the more I understand this concept of trusting Him and obeying. Not because I understand, but because He said to do it. Great, I will do it, Lord, because it makes me happy. And in holiness there is happiness, and in happiness there is true holiness. And oh, if the people of Israel could have sung and understood those words, trust and obey, there's no other way. And so Moses then reminds them of the people uh, of, their, of their greatest failure, I believe, in Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. It's their failure at Kadesh, that point on the border of the Promised Land. By the way, every time you hear the word Kadesh in Bible study, Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea, that should be a red flag for you. That should be kind of a picture for us of a failure to trust. Because that's what happened at Kadesh, is the people were standing, looking into the promised land, sending spies into the land. It looked good. It was a fruitful land, but they could not go in. Verse 23 says, When the Lord sent you up from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up! Possess the land which I have given you. Then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you neither believed Him nor listened to His voice. You did not trust Him. You did not obey. You didn't believe Him. And it's such a simple combination to listen and believe, to believe and listen, Paul says, because faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Where's my faith going to come from? It's from hearing the word, and obeying the word, and following what he says. Verse 24, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you, Moses says. So I fell down before the Lord for 40 days and nights which I did because the Lord said He would destroy you I prayed to the Lord and I said oh Lord God do not destroy your people even your inheritance whom you have redeemed through your greatness whom you have brought out of, the, out of Egypt with a mighty hand remember your servants Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at the wickedness of their sin that, that's what I say to God don't look at my stubbornness Please, Lord, ignore the wickedness of my sin. Just look at Jesus. He stands before me. 
Verse 28, Otherwise the land from which you brought us may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which He promised them. And because He hated them, He has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. And Moses says something wonderful here. He understands the heart of God. He says, Yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. I told my friend, in this email today who was asking why about Jesus and all this why did God send Jesus because God has been providing a way for us to get back to him because God created us in the first place for relationship because he loves us I don't understand why I can be pretty unlovable and yet God created me to be in relationship with me but the only way to provide for that relationship is to send Jesus To be that perfect sacrifice to make the way back to God. Adam and Eve in the garden had it great. Walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. With the Lord in the shade of the trees. Talking to the Lord. Anything they needed was right there. He gave them one law. The one commandment. Not even ten. Just one. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Was there not enough fruit in the garden that they had to have the one piece? Why did they eat the one piece of fruit? Because that's what we do. You give me one thing not to do, and that's what I want to go find out. I want to see what it's about. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to look at it because you told me not to. And I'm going to check out that fruit. It's the old trick that kids used to play when they were, you know, little. Just, just, hey, look at that. And everybody would turn around and look. And it made you look because we want to see. We want to. There's that, there's that sense in us. It's the sin nature that wants to rebel. And that fruit in the garden, that one little piece was the first rebellion but there's been so much since then like Israel were a rebellious and a stiff-necked people and God wants this rebellious and stiff-necked people we are his people his inheritance well going on in chapter 10 Moses continues to recount the tale of the broken commandments you know the commandments that he broke literally because the people broke spiritually so back up the mountain he goes and says at that time the Lord said to me cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones Come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourself. Talking about the ark of the covenant. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered and you shall put them in the ark. Notice the Lord doesn't leave the people commandmentless. He doesn't say, hey, they couldn't keep it and you went and broke them, Moses. You guys are on your own. Good luck. Have fun. Go back to Egypt if you want to. Try and take the promised land, but I am not hanging out with you guys anymore. He doesn't even cut down the commandments. It's not the three commandments. It's not all of a sudden, okay, maybe ten was too much for him. <laughs> Let's give him five and see how they do. The five commandments. What does that mean? That God's word is God's word and it remains immutable. God's word is unchanging whether we can keep it or not. It is God's word. It is written in stone. And people today don't understand this about the word. They'll call the Bible outdated or irrelevant or antiquated. Now granted it flies in the face of relativism in our world. It goes head to head with evolutionary truth is whatever you make it kind of world that we live in. But nothing is more relevant than the Bible. I am so thankful that we have a foundation to stand on, the foundation of truth. I'm reading a really cool book that I'd recommend to you right now by Lorna Simcox called The Search. Lorna Simcox was raised in a Jewish home by very strong Jewish parents. Not religious as much as secular, but they escaped Adolf Hitler, made their way to America, and she was raised in this home, but she ultimately found Christ. And the book is a story of how she found the Lord. It's called The Search. But in it, she begins talking about truth and the great lack of truth in the world. She shares this story. I want you to hear this. Have you heard the story of the origin of the bathtub? In 1917, noted journalist H.L. Mencken, then a writer for the New York Evening Mail, wrote a piece hailing the 75th anniversary of the bathtub. A convenience that he said came to this country in 1842 thanks to a man named Adam Thompson. Minkin wrote that Thompson had a 7 seven by 4 foot, 1,750 pound tub installed in his home in Cincinnati and immediately he suffered the rebuke of many Americans who vilified the vessel, calling it a variety of names including immoral, elitist, unhealthy, and of all things, unlawful. Minkin wrote that bathing finally gained respectability only after President Millard Fillmore had the first bathtub installed in the White House in 1851. 
Eight and a half years after Mencken wrote this article, he wrote a retraction stating that the article was pure hu- <laughs> I can't even say it. Pure hooey. <laughs> it was bunk. But by then, the facts of this article, eight and a half years earlier, that had been printed had made it all the way around the world and people absolutely believed it. It had been reprinted over and over and over and even his retraction couldn't retract all these articles that had been sent out around the world. And so everybody believed this, this article about the bathtub was used in medical conventions. It was used everywhere as the standard for where the bathtub came from and he made the whole thing up. It's just hilarious. A bathtub. Why would people not accept the truth after they've been handed this load of hooey? Minkin himself later wrote these words, and it's fascinating because it speaks to the human condition. He said, no normal human being wants to hear the truth. Isn't that true? No normal human being, we're a little abnormal in here tonight, but no normal human being wants to hear the truth. It is the passion of a small and aberrant minority. They are hated for telling the truth while they live. And when they die, they're swiftly forgotten. What remains in the world is a series of long-tested and solidly agreeable lies. And it is in this world that we have the foundation of truth. The immutable word of God that does not change regardless of how we act or what we do. The word is the word is the word. And it's perfect. The psalmist writes, Psalm 9 verse 7, Restoring the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Well, going on in verse 3 of chapter 10, Moses says, he, he goes up to get the word, and he made an ark of acacia wood, and he cut out two tablets of stone, like the former ones, and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand, he said. And God wrote on the tablets, like the former writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain, from the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. And then I turned and I came down from the mountain, this is the second time, and I put the tablets into the ark which I had made. And I can see Moses standing there when he says this. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. Wonderful. He's saying, look, it's been 40 years, and there they are. Look at the ark, gang. In the center of the tabernacle. They're still there. The commandments are still there. They've been there the last 40 years. They haven't gone away. They have resided there. The tablets are still in the ark. Gang, it's been 3,600 years for us, and the Word of God still is here. It's still immutable. It still has not failed. Because God's Word is perfect. And now, now we are blessed to read it through the lens of grace. Do you remember what it was that sat on top of the ark right above the law yeah, that's right the mercy seat God places mercy over the law he puts his mercy there that it would cover the law because we can't keep the law we can't bear the weight of those commandments we would drop them in a heartbeat we would break them like the children of Israel or like Moses. We can't carry that weight. And so God says, I'll tell you what, put the mercy seat on top of the ark and I will meet you there. I will meet you in that place. The law is inside. The law shows you of your need. It reminds you how, how much you need a Savior. How much you need mercy. But I'm giving you mercy and I will meet you above the mercy seat. Jesus said this in Matthew 9.13. He said, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy not sacrifice for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance and Jesus is saying something important here saying the law is here on purpose the law is here to show you your need for mercy the law is the tutor Paul says to bring us to faith Galatians 3.23 Before faith came we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. This afternoon I watched for the first time the first of the series of eight Bible studies called The Way of the Master. 
that Kirk Cameron and, and Ray Comfort are doing, and it's our women, one of our women's groups are going to do it on a Monday night. Sharon's going to be teaching that study. And I watched it just to kind of get an idea, make sure, you know, Sharon's not going off the deep end in some major heresy. No, I'm kidding. But I watched it, and here's the deal. They use the Ten Commandments to get people's attention. The whole point of this method of evangelism, and it's wonderful, they'll come up to a man on the street and they'll just say, so how do you get to heaven? And typically the answer is, I'm a good person. Okay, good. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah. Okay. Have you ever stolen anything? I'd like even a pen from the office. Yeah. You ever looked at a woman just with a lustful thought? Yeah, okay, so we've established that you're a lying, stealing adulterer. <laughs> based on biblical standards. So now are you going to heaven? And people either walk away confused or just a seed is planted. The law is the tutor that brings people to Christ. Because if we hold up the law, and, and listen to me carefully on this, it's very important. We're not saying that we live by the law that the law saves us that by the keeping of the law we can get to heaven that's not what we're saying at all what we're saying is you hold up the law and recognize your need and it's in your need that you come to mercy it's in your need that you recognize God's kindness it's when you know you have no hope the law makes it clear that you are now tutored schooled to grace that's awesome the church has gotten away from truth church has gotten into our methods of evangelism are very relational hey Jesus again he wants to be your bud hang out with Jesus why would anybody want to do that hang out with my friends who I can see you know why would I what's the point and it is the question why do we need Jesus because the law shows us how sinful we really are the law is perfect we are imperfect And there's a great application here, this whole idea of mercy resting above the law. And the application is simply this, for those of us saved by grace, which I believe is all of us here tonight. What is it that you require of people in your life? Jesus says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. But I think we switch that in our relationships. I want sacrifice. I want you to pay for what you did. Or not completely, I'll be nice, but I want you to pay a little bit. I want sacrifice. I want payment if you've wronged me. And Jesus says, I want mercy. I want you to show mercy. Because in showing mercy, you will look much more like the Father. So this time, before the commandments are placed, or before they can be shattered again, God says to Moses, put them in the ark. (laughs) Because I've, I've seen you and you're a little clumsy. Put them in the ark and keep them there where they're safe and where they will stand. Verse 6 reading on tells us, Now the sons of Israel set out from Beirach, Benajachin to Moserah. There Aaron died and he was buried and Eliezer his son ministered as high priest in his place. This is a little parenthesis that that Moses just kind of sticks in here. Part of it is just to remind us that, hey, Aaron, uh, Aaron didn't die back at Horeb like he should have. Remember Moses prayed for him because Aaron was the one who crafted the golden calf great example for the high priest but he didn't die until much later on and that's what Moses is referring to here but in verse 7 it says from there they set out to Gagoda and from Gagoda to Jot Bathra a land of brooks of water and at that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord to serve him and to bless in his name until this day therefore Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers the Lord is his inheritance just as the Lord your God spoke to him remember the tribe of Levi was given a unique role they were given the priesthood the priesthood that if you didn't know this you Bible students know the priesthood was originally to be all of Israel's. Originally, God's plan was a nation of priests. But the sin was so great that he pulled back and he gave the priesthood to a tribe of priests, the tribe of Levi. Why did Levi get it? Exodus 32, verse 26 tells us at that time that Moses stood at the gate of the camp. It's when he came down the mountain. The people had sinned. He broke the commands. And he says, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. 
And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh, and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp, and kill every man his brother, and every man his friend, and every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did it that day, and they killed 3,000 of their brothers and sons and neighbors. It was a bloodbath. And we read a story like that in the Bible and we say, now wait a minute, Jesus said I require mercy, not sacrifice. And 3,000 people were sacrificed. That doesn't sound like mercy to me. Hey, listen, it was either 3,000 or 3 million. It was either cut out the sin that would infect the entire camp or the whole camp is going to get the cancer. It's going to spread. There is mercy in taking the sword of the word and wielding it against sin that can infect to eternal death. It is merciful, by the way, to tell a friend of yours that without Jesus, they are without hope. It is merciful to talk about hell. Did you know that? Boy, we shy away from that. In evangelistic conversations, if we're trying to bring someone to Christ, the last thing we want to do is talk about hell. And yet, you know, hell is a merciful concept to share. It is unmerciful to let someone just think they're going to be fine when they die outside of Christ. It is merciful to right now, while they can make a choice, say, listen, you have an option. The glory, the wonder, the splendor of being with God through all eternity and all of His blessings or going to hell and it's your choice. And we've got to stop dancing around the issue, beating around the bush. We need to stand up and be clear with people what the options are. That is mercy. By the way, again, you Bible students know that though 3,000 died that day at Mount Sinai, 3,000 is the exact number that were saved on the first day of Pentecost when the Lord poured out His Spirit. As if the Lord was saying, Look, I have mercy for you. I am a merciful God. Verse 10, Moses going on says, I moreover stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. And the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was not willing then to destroy you. It's wonderful. Then the Lord said to me, Arise and proceed on your journey ahead of the people that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? Here's one of those moments of relevance. Moses is saying, what does he require of you? You have the law. What's the law all about? Here it is in a nutshell, he would say. He requires this of you, to fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways and love him. And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Why, Moses? For your good. Because Father really does know best. Because God does know what is good for Israel. He's a good God. And goodness is in His nature. Verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the highest heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Yet, on your fathers did the Lord set His affection to love them. And He chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples, as it is to this day. I remember... Back when I was in college, I wanted to do a sermon on the love of God. And I was looking all over the place, trying to get examples of God's love and, and how God loved people. And, and I, didn't, I didn't know how to make my way around the Bible at the time. It was really frustrating, but I see it over and over in these Old Testament passages here in the Torah. On your fathers did the Lord set His affection to love them. It doesn't get more passionate than that. And He chose their descendants, even you, above all peoples, as it is to this day, and God still has a plan for Israel. I've said many times, God is not through with the Jew. But there's something else to understand here, gang. And that is that like the people Israel, you're chosen. The Lord has set His affection on you. He loves you. He is passionate for you. Jewish people today might not understand that so much. In the history that they've had, they might miss the love of God, not get it for all that's happened. I've quoted Tevye before, the character from The Fiddler on the Roof. Great, great character, great movie, great play. But he says at one point, Lord, I know we're your chosen people, but don't you think you could choose someone else for a change? But I guarantee you this, after that time of Jacob's trouble, after the tribulation 
When the Jewish people, the remnant, are saved and a third enter into the kingdom, there will not be a Jew among them who does not revel in the fact that they were chosen. That they were the chosen people of God. And you and I are invited to do the same thing, but we don't have to wait. We can do it today to relish our chosenness. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And I said this to people, if they ask, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? Easy, choose the Lord and you know you were chosen. How do I know I'm part of that group of people who were chosen from the foundations of the earth to be one of God's only children, to to be involved and to be part of that family? How do I know I'm one of them? Easy, choose Him. And you were, and you are, and you will be. Just choose it. Because He has a heart towards you. How do you respond to your chosenness? Look at verse 16. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer circumcise your heart this is the first time we see this in the scriptures first time circumcision is now connected to the heart it's amazing that Moses picks up this principle this is application of the law you know circumcision was sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and the Jewish people you will circumcise your firstborn it's on the eighth day there's a whole theology and, and teaching and understanding of circumcision that's fascinating even to the physical Did you know, by the way, on the eighth day is the healthiest and safest time to circumcise a male infant? It's the time where it's the least painful. It's the time where there's the least amount of bleeding. Where the fastest healing occurs is on the eighth day, exactly as God prescribed it. Medical sciences figured that out. A little after the fact, they finally caught up with the Lord on that one. But this whole concept of circumcision seems a little odd at first. Why would God choose that? We have a lot of jokes about it. A pastor, a priest, and a rabbi. We're all uh, talking and debating over who was best at their job. And they decided to go into the woods and find a bear and attempt to convert it. So first, they get back together a week or so later, and and the the priest said, Hey, I found a bear, and I read to him from the catechism, and uh, sprinkled some holy water on him, and next week is his first communion. Well, the pastor said, well, I found a bear by the stream and I preached the word to him and he was so mesmerized he let me baptize him right on the spot. And they looked down there at their friend, the priest, who was lying wrapped up in a full body cast and the priest said, oi, maybe I shouldn't have started with circumcision. (laughs) Reader's Digest. I cracked up. But for all the jokes and humor about circumcision, listen, and Moses, he, he helps us to understand. And he helps under Israel to come to this place of relevance. What is this really about? God chose this amazing symbol. Amazing symbol. There's a little maturity required to understand the symbol. But consider this. The sign of the flesh. I can't think of a better way for God to express the idea of blessing Abraham's seed. I mean, God is graphic and he goes right to the source and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your seed. Everybody that comes from you, I am going to bless. And therefore the sign is going to be circumcision that you might remember. And I guarantee he did. Because Abraham was not eight days old when he was circumcised. Circumcision. Moses comes along and does something fantastic. He applies this physical law to the heart. He says, no longer, Israel, you keep circumcising, but understand, it's not about the flesh. It is about the heart. Literally, by the way, here, if this was written out, and I understand why they change it, it's because of the graphic nature of the verse, but it is, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Is the literal translation there. Moses gets right down to the heart of the matter, and he says, it is not just a sign of the flesh, it is a matter of the heart. And this is why I say the book of Deuteronomy is a book of love. It's a book of passion. It's a book where Moses explains to the people this is about a love relationship between you and the Lord. Circumcise the heart. Have a heart that is soft. Have a heart that is tender. A heart that is sensitive to the Lord. A circumcised heart. And what's wonderful too is it's not just men who can circumcise the heart, is it? Because men and women both have hearts. And the Lord says to all of us, 
circumcise the heart. Paul says in Romans 2.29, He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is not that which... No, he says circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul, piggybacking right on what Moses had just said, well, 1,600 years earlier, on what Moses had said, that it is circumcision of the heart, it is a heart issue, it is not by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of the law that God wants relationship. And God wants us to be heart-level followers of His. Now Moses goes on to express for all of God's grandeur, His soft-heartedness. Reading on verse 17, The Lord your God... And I love this setup. The Lord your God is a God of gods. And the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality or take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. God is great! But he cares about the orphan. God is awesome! But he's looking after the widow. God is almighty. But as the psalmist says, he stoops down and cares for the dust of the earth. He concerns himself with us. Who is like the Lord our God, Psalm 113 tells us. Who is enthroned on high. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven. (laughs) He has to humble himself just to look at the heavens. And the earth below. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Gang, we are the poor and we are the needy and we are the outsider and we, we gang, are the alien. Look around. We're aliens here. We are the outsider, the Gentile, who is not a part of the family. But God shows no partiality and has made a way to bring us in. And so he says to Israel, verse 19, this is what God does. He cares about the widow and the orphan and the alien. So show your love for the alien. For you are aliens, strangers in the land of Egypt. Says Israel, be like God. Love the stranger. In Hebrew, it's the gayer, the guest. The outsider, the stranger. Do you remember when you were the stranger? When you were the outsider? Do you remember maybe the first time you walked into a church? And how that must have felt just to get through the door. You were the stranger. I, uh, on Saturday we had a baby jubilee at our house. Which is a wonderful event for the ladies great four infants cute as buttons their moms and ladies gathered around and had cake and they gave gifts and and I stayed in my office because I was a stranger to all that estrogen I'm telling you they stood in the entryway and the ooing and the awing it went on for like 20 minutes now I can appreciate a cute baby but I was a stranger in their midst I was an alien I didn't speak the language, so I just stayed in my office in a safe place. I remember what it's like to be the stranger. But seriously, gang, don't forget, we were outsiders. We were strangers at one time. One of the greatest testimonies of God's work here at the bridge is, and I heard it again on Sunday, when someone walked in and and after, after the fact, after one of the baptisms, I was talking to this lady, came for the first time on Sunday, she said, I just felt so at home and people were just so gracious and nice and relaxed and and she got she teared up tear running down her face saying how wonderful a morning it had been and I just I just thank God for you I said wow how cool is it that this fellowship doesn't make people feel like strangers keep that up Keep that up. As people walk in the door, let's have our radar up and be looking for the person who feels a little uncomfortable, who feels maybe like, am I going to be good enough? And we all know the truth. It doesn't take much to be good enough to walk in the door of the barn. In fact, it takes nothing because none of us are good enough. But remember the stranger. That's what God does. Don't forget to love those who are strangers. Don't change who you are, by the way, in Christ. Don't try to become like the stranger to win the stranger. You be who you are in Christ. But you love the stranger. 
you'll love the outsider. Verse 20. Almost done here. It says, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. He is your praise. And He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And this is great. Moses is saying, from 70 to the stars, look how you've grown. Look how you have grown, Israel. Just go ahead. Take a look around you, he says, to this crowd of 2.5 to 3 million people. Look how you've grown. 400 years ago, there were 70. It was just a, a scruffy little family. You remember the family that went down into Egypt, don't you? Jacob, the patriarch, the conniver, the man whose name meant heel catcher or usurper. He was a conniver. God changed his name to Israel. To Israel. Amazing. Of course, Jacob had a bunch of out-of-control, scraggly sons who were so bad they sold their own brother, Joseph, into slavery, into Egypt. He sold down there. Famine hits, and Jacob and the boys, they decided they got to head south to Egypt to get some food and just survive this thing. And they reunite there with Joseph in an amazing story. Genesis 48, 49, into Genesis. Fantastic story. And it was 400 years after this, after God moved that little clan into Egypt to protect them and to save them and to nurture them and grow them, over those 400 years of slavery, He grew that 70 into a people as numerous as the stars. From 70 to the stars. Look how you've grown. And we end on this thought game. How do we do that? How do we grow in the Lord? How do we move from scraggly 70 to the stars? How can we say, look, how we've grown. Moses gives us the answer in these last verses. Fear Him and serve Him and cling to Him and swear by His name. Just like Peter did, Acts 4.12. He said, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. My friend who I'm writing back and forth to you on the internet, I'm going to say Jesus, 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 Jesus because that is the only name that she can hear by which she can be saved. That's it. The name of Jesus. By the way, when Peter said these words, he was in a great situation. He just spent the night in jail. He and John. The Sanhedrin pulled him up in front of them and they declare, you are not to speak in this name anymore. And they say, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we can't help but keep speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. That's swearing by the name. I swear by the name of Jesus. And I don't mean swearing and cursing like we do in our culture. I mean speak in the name. That these simple fishermen recognized what Moses was trying to instill in the people some 1,600 years before. What's that? Paul said it in Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work. God is at work with you and in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He is our praise and He is our God. And Father, we thank You for these words tonight. And we pray that You would give us confidence. God, I ask, would You give us confidence to stand on the truth of Your Word? To be evangelical, not just in name or title, but in behavior, Father. That we would take the truth to people. That we would not be ashamed of or afraid of just speaking your word. Of allowing people to see themselves, the law, as a tutor that it might bring them to Christ. Father, may we become emboldened in our declaration of Jesus in and among these islands, in this region. May we be known as those who speak this name, who stand by this name. In fact, Father, who swear by the name of Jesus Christ the only name that can save us we thank you for your precious word tonight write it on our hearts Father inscribe it with your finger Lord in the name of Jesus we pray